Welcome to Brute Facts. Tonight, I got a special guest, Dr. Tyler McNabb. He is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at University of St. Joseph in Macau, uh, former Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Houston Baptist University. He has a PhD from the University of Glasgow, uh, Philosophy of Religion, his specialties epistemology, and uh, comparative philosophy. I actually have his book over here on religious epistemology. It is a short read, but a very good read. And I have all of the descriptions in the bottom as well as in the comment section, as well as a link to his page, his Phil Papers page, and his books. Thank you for joining us tonight. It's going to be a fun one. Hang tight, and I'll be right back with Dr. McNabb. Welcome to the Brute Facts Podcast with your host and everybody's favorite Christian, Eddie Crone. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel and hit that notification bell for future content. Hello, hello. How are you doing, Dr. McNabb? Hey, great. Thank you for having me on. Um, Absolutely. I, I saw that the adult beverages part, and it was making me wish I had a cider with me, <laughs> a strong bow, you know. Well, you know, uh, beer is part of it. Uh, it's beard brains uh, and beards, and you yes. only need one. And okay. of course, okay. the most I've got a little have, beard right now. I've got a, I got a little one. So, <laughs> but I, I stopped kind of advertising it with because I had a few uh, Christian guests who were real uncomfortable with it. So I was, oh, like, okay. okay, well, I'll just let them bring it if they want it. <laughs> so, well, I'm a Catholic, so uh, alcohol oh, is yeah, part of my religion. <laughs> that's my favorite kind right there. Yeah, this, this is to the Catholics. <laughs> so I uh, I was telling you in the backstage, I kind of grew up fundamentalist. And um, I mean, we you just kind of cultural Christians is, and they sent us to a fundamentalist church. But my brother got married to a Catholic in a Catholic church and had the reception in the basement. And that was the first time I'd ever drink, drink a beer at a church. It felt weird. Whoa. It was like <laughs> the the, yeah, the priest was over there, like just hammering Bud Lights. And I was like, this is my kind of jam. I like this. So. <laughs> yeah, I remember, um, you know, when I was at Glasgow, uh, alcohol was at all the events. And so then I went from Glasgow to HBU and it's a Baptist, you know, university yeah. and uh, no alcohol. Uh, 
the policy. And, and I was just like, well, where, where's all the alcohol, guys? Where's the wine? Where's the cider? <laughs> Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Have you always been a Christian? When did you become a mm. Christian? How were you raised a Christian? Right, right. Thanks for the, the question. Uh, yeah, so um, in my theology, <laughs> uh, I was baptized, and by being baptized, I was made a Christian um, when, I don't know, I was 12 or something like that. I was raised in a Baptist home, though, um, uh, Southern Baptist home from, you know, I, I'm, I'm from the great country of Texas, so yeah. uh, pretty much your Southern Baptists are Catholic in, in Texas. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh yeah, I didn't get super serious about my faith, though. Um, you know, said some prayers most nights. Uh, went to church on and off. Uh, you know, so I was, I was, we went to church more than Christers, right? Those people who go to church just Christmas and Easter, but not much more, right? Christers, so, I like that. <laughs> I don't know, maybe like five times a year or something, like six <laughs> times a year. You know, that, that's, that's kind of, right. uh, was, but we did have like, six seven bibles in the house so, oh nice for only four people so still yeah still uh, made that out <laughs> but um yeah uh when i was a senior in high school i started all of a sudden questioning my faith and uh, kind of had a, a crisis and uh started doubting everything and was just gonna was just kind of like hey um if there's no reason to believe right if this is just blind faith i can't do that and I thought at the time, um, as most seniors, uh, se seniors in high school probably would, <laughs> I thought, well, hey, if, if God doesn't exist, then objective moral values uh, don't exist. And uh, there's no objective meaning. And uh, I'm just going to basically live life how I see fit, get the most uh, happiness that I can get out, uh, and then I'll die and you know, cease to be. Um, and then I was like, but I'm not going to go that way just, just yet. Right. Um, so I, I ended up like Googling proofs for God's existence, right. Came across some old Testament passages, uh, like Isaiah 53, mm. where when I read it all of a sudden, I started finding myself believe that this, this was Jesus, even though this was written, you know, long before Jesus. And, uh, so I started reading these old Testament passages that, that seemed to, uh, speak of Christ and um, this all of a sudden started to really move me. Um, yes, Texas represents. Uh, God bless the great country. Um, and uh, yeah, I um, found myself late to school the next day and was like, you know what? I'm already late. Screw it. I'm going to pull over. And I pulled over in my Ford Focus and to a Starbucks coffee shop area and was like, I believe this is your word, but is Jesus really God? And I did the unpardonable sin of randomly closing my eyes and flipping open scripture and pinpointing to, you know, to see if Jesus was God and whatever that was going to say, all right, that, that's, that's, that's where I would be led. Uh, and you know, thankfully it wasn't like Jesus got tired. <laughs> Jesus slept, <laughs> but, um, but Jesus got hungry. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, it, it was, it was actually a passage by God's grace, um, that seemed to really, um, convey Jesus' deity. And so I, I read the passage, uh, and it was in reference to calming the seas and even the seas obeying them and the disciples freaking out and 
I was just like, hey, wow, Jesus is God. It's portraying Jesus God. And, and all of a sudden I found myself filled with the Holy Spirit and just I could, I could feel God tangibly. Immense happiness and joy just took over my heart. Wow. And I felt God's presence. Wow. So like I was uh, changed and I would come home from school and I would l- start listening to biblical commentaries and lectures. And um, and about a couple months later after that, I started street evangelizing um, at the at the local mall. And um, I r- quickly realized that apologetics was kind of something I should get into. And so uh, I got into kind of like really lay level, <laughs> surface level apologetics, right? I remember buying Josh McDowell's uh, um, evidence that man's a verdict or something like that. It was a really, really big book. And um, I was just like eating it up. And and uh, then I, I got into Michael Brown's uh, four-part series of uh, on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. And that played a big role in my faith. And um, eventually I started... Uh, I, Sorry, should I shut up now or keep? No, going? no, go ahead. I'm, no, I'm, I'm loving <laughs> okay. it. It's okay. Uh, I love hearing uh, people's testimonies. It's, yeah, sorry, I, I totally went Baptist on you. It's like, <laughs> boom. Drops Is there going to be an altar bomb. call? Or, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, um, yeah, you got to ask Pope Francis into your heart in addition to Jesus, though. Oh, so, that's right. You know, yeah, n- notice that. Um, no, <laughs> I uh, started. I uh, went to a very liberal. Baptist University, not knowing it was liberal. Um, and I went there and was like basically getting taught Jesus seminar, <laughs> um, oh. you know, uh, yeah. uh, liberation theology, hardcore on steroids. And, and I was just like, okay, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I have to do apologetics again, right? Not just for street evangelism, for actually going to school. And uh, so I started, you know, again, grappling with apologetics. And uh, it wasn't until I was after a year later, I, I transferred to another university. And uh, to, to Chriswell College, it's a good Southern Baptist college. Loves Jesus and um, has some great, great thinkers, great scholars. And um, uh, I had a friend who knew I street evangelized, and we started evangelizing together. And he started using philosophy um, when he was street evangelizing. I was just like, "What? What is this?" Like, I've been doing like kind of like basic evidential stuff, mostly historical stuff. Um, I've never understood this philosophical stuff. So I just started getting it up and getting involved in it. However, I quickly bought into a really, really bad epistemology where I was like, in order to know anything, um, and I'm going to have a friend right now who's going to like want to have a word with me after I say (laughs) this is bad epistemology, but um, uh, that that if if, uh, S knows that P, then it's such that S can't be wrong about P. Right. Uh, so sort of this strong infallibilism. Uh, and so I was just like, well, what if, <laughs> Why? you know, what if God doesn't exist? And, uh, you know, I just kept imagining myself uh, running into a philosophy professor right at the time I was a biblical studies major um, and, you know, him just schooling me in philosophy. And then all of a sudden I'd be like, well, I don't know God exists anymore. I don't have my faith anymore. And, you know, I wasted my, the last 10 years of my life, right? Yeah. And I just kept imagining that scenario. And I just always, it always seemed possible that there could be some objection that would undercut my reasons for believing in God. 
And I went through like a major, major crisis for about a year where I, I kept holding my faith. I, I held on to it firmly. I still did ministry and evangelized. Um, but God seemed very far from me. Um, I didn't feel his presence so tangible anymore. Right. And uh, uh, doubts, I constantly had to sort of put down doubts. And then finally, honestly, one day just disappeared about a year later. It disappeared. It was about a, a year of uh, a season. And um, I, I remembered that the times I felt like I most strongly believed, uh, the firmness of my belief was as strong as it could be, was times when um, I saw Jesus in the Old Testament. And that's kind of interesting because that's kind of how I came to faith in part. Um, right. And so that was real big into a, a biblical scholar named um, John Salhammer, right? And uh, some people might know who Brever Childs is. So I, I kind of went this route with biblical theology. Um, and uh, um, then I, there was another time when we almost, I almost got in a car accident. And it was raining really bad in Dallas one day. I was living in Dallas oh, at the wow. time. And, and uh, all of a sudden, in peace, right, serenity, uh, the presence of God. I felt as certain as God's existence as I ever had. And just kind of came over me, and and then the next day though it was gone. <laughs> that yeah. started existential crisis. So, um, yeah. So uh, I, I noticed that. But um, long story short, um, I was getting out of the season, getting more firm in my faith. The doubts were less and less. Uh, ended up going to graduate school and um, reading Alvin Plantinga's Warranted Christian Belief, and all of a sudden. I realized that I could know that God exists even apart from argumentation. You were so like this whole time I was like this hard evidentialist standard, yeah. right? Uh, I don't think at the time I was an infallibilist, uh, but I was still kind of more sympathetic with that route, you know? And uh, I was just reading, eating up warrant proper, uh, warrant proper function, warrant Christian belief. And I was like, this is, this, this is the stuff that I want to spend a good portion of my career sort of defending it. So I ended up getting me into doing a PhD in philosophy and a uh, master's in philosophy of religion. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's basically yeah, that was, kind of my story. Well, that's cool. You knock out two questions with one story. So <laughs> how did you get into philosophy? But well, there we go. Uh, yes. I asked, I, uh, I asked St. Alvin into my heart and that's it. You know. Hey, I'm, I'm going to tell you what, that is a brilliant man. That is, um, he, you know, I, I read, uh, uh, what was uh, the condensed version? Uh, uh, knowledge and Christian belief. Yes, knowledge and Christian belief, and it was all new to me, so I had to like read it. And then I'm really ADHD, so <laughs> I would read the chapter and only really catch part of it. Sure. Go back and read it again. So it took me forever to get through it, but when I did, uh, it really started clicking, and I was like. Because uh, I've told people, you know, time and time again, even if I wasn't a Christian, I would be a deist or something because mm. I've always just found myself believing, you know. Right. So right. I really resonated with Planningo when he was talking about, uh, you know, like looking out at the beauty of the skies and just automatically just thanking God. He never reasoned himself to a God existing. Right. So. I was really drawn uh, to his work, which is how I got introduced to you and uh, Andrew Moon and yep. some others. It, uh, it, I kind of got hooked from the first time I 
started reading him, but <laughs> I've since left the Reformed Epistemology faith a little Don't bit. Don't do that. Don't no. do that. Don't no, do I'm, that. I'm I'm working on, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping that Swinburne, you know, gets this bridge for me between externalism and internalism. And So I, I've actually talked to Swinburne uh, about Reformed Epistemology, and he seemed quite open to actually endorsing a proper functionalist account of warrant and and the idea um, that sometimes, at least for some individuals, uh, if they have a really powerful religious experience, that can, and, and right. naturally just sort of forms a belief that that could be enough. Right. So when I, when I was talking to Swinburne, it really came across that he was a reformed epistemology, or he affirmed it. It's just that he thought it was uninteresting. And yeah. wanted, wanted to, uh, so he didn't identify that, like, so publicly writing about that and so forth, because he didn't, he, he wanted to talk about justification, and he wanted to talk about probabilities for most people, you know, who yeah. don't have strong religious experiences and so forth. So yeah, that's, so you, uh, you, you, you can through, go both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going through uh, his epistemic justification now and he, he kind of makes a distinction between synchronic and diachronic, diachronic mm-hmm. beliefs. Um, and he seems like he's, uh, you know, kind of putting together, a, you know, an idea of, internal and external justification together um, based on, you know, the belief when they have it and, you know, the short term and how they came to have the belief versus the long term and I guess their epistemic duty or something. But uh, talking to talk, talking to Swinburne, is he as hard to understand talking to him as listening to his lectures? Because I have a hard time following <laughs> him. It's not so much the accent. I just have a hard time following him. He's yeah, yeah. I think he's like just on this whole other level that I'm just not there <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I enjoy talking with him, and well, um, I actually have, I have a fun story um, uh, about uh, I was driving him because we were hosting him at HBU and uh, I was uh, driving him in the, in the car and I, I, I thought, you know what? I, I can't get back this moment, right? I mean, Swinburne and I talked about philosophy a lot. Don't get me wrong. But I was like, I can have, I have the potential to have a really funny story right now. Uh, you know, in Houston, I'm from Houston. Uh, I was brought up in Houston rap, right? On Houston rap. And I was like, I'm going to play some chameleon air. Oh no. And I'm going to blare it really loud. And I'm going to tell him beforehand that I want to know his opinion and what he thinks of this. So I started blaring the sound of revenge, you know, really loud driving. And uh, about 30 seconds into it, I looked over and I was like, so what do you think? And he's just like, uh, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> oh, I, I picture him with uh, sitting in uh, his library with a fireplace and a expensive cigar and oh, yeah, classical yeah, yeah. music. He's, he's and, awesome. He's, he's yeah. He's he he politely declined my invitation to come on the show. Okay. But uh, yeah, he's he, I, guys, man. There no, he, he's so many Swin, invitations. It's you know, yeah, yeah. And Swin, Swinburne is is awesome. I praise God for him and all the work yeah. that God has done through him and. Uh, it's, uh, he's, he's a tremendous guy and, and a guy who, um, I've like, a, uh, could ask advice for, and he gives it, I mean, he, he, he has a real heart for the Lord and for yeah. his church. 
Yeah, we just got to look past the open theism thing. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a cool yes. guy for sure. I'm a Thomist, so I'm 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 not an open theist, but <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I'm not sure where I'm at on Thomism because oh, he's so hard to understand. <laughs> I started with um, Ed Fazer, yeah. and he lost me quick. So I went to <laughs> Peter Cre- Peter Kraft, okay. and yeah. He does uh-huh. such a better job of explaining it. So now I feel like I'm on the level I can go to Ed Phaser. Okay. <laughs> okay. His stuff. So you gotta uh, you gotta gotta read Kraft, then read Phaser. Yeah. And then I'll, you know you Yeah, uh, read more advanced works of Phaser or some list. Yes, yes. It's well the thing is, I mean, uh Thomas Aquinas was so brilliant, man. He just his his level of abstractness is just yeah out of this world and trying to follow him it's man and and to think that he thought that the summa theologica was like something basic for everyone yeah it's like (laughs) yeah it's like this is crap i can't even finish it i'm not even gonna finish it it just well i like how he kind of you know tried to marry the empiricism and Mm. the Right, right, right um uh, the rash, the rationality, mm-hmm. the, the, you know what I mean? They trying to, uh, kind of, you know, make it make sense. So, and that's, I'm kind of a middle of the road guy, you okay. know, I, I, I don't like to hang out on the extremes. Let's, let's find that's something that'll, you know, let, let's make it make sense. So, uh, but be, yeah. no, go ahead. So here, here's what you could do since you don't, since, you know, you, you want to kind of have both worlds. Uh, you can do what I do. So I endorse, an internalist theory about justification, but an externalist theory about warrant. There you go. And so um, phenomenal conservatism, right, is uh, basically advocates that, um, you know, I can be justified or at least have some justification for my belief if uh, it appears to me that P, and I don't have a defeater for P, right? So if uh, it appears to me that there's a water bottle here, right, I have a strong experience that inclines me to believe that there's a water bottle here, right? And I don't have a defeater for thinking um, that, there, that uh, for for believing that there's a water bottle, so I have some justification for it. So uh, I primarily understand justification kind of old school. I understand it like deontologically, if right. I'm within my epistemic rights and affirming something. Um, but nonetheless, when it I need like a much tighter connection to truth um, when it comes to um, you know, reference to knowledge and so forth. Right. So then that's when the externalism, proper functionalism stuff kicks in, yeah, which is what I'm I very, spend most of my time thinking about. Cause I like knowledge a lot more than justification. Right. So I'm kind of opposite of Swinburne. Right. That's it. And I'm very sympathetic to phenomenal conservatism. I mean, it, you know, it just makes sense that if something seems to me to be the truth, mm-hmm. then I'm more, it's more plausible to, you know, believe what seems to be true you know so right. i think seemings are you know very powerful um and i don't you know i've heard arguments against phenomenal conservatism but uh you know on the the surface of it it's i'm pretty sympathetic to it because yeah. Yeah. you know i just i don't know how you could deny something that seems to be true to you. <laughs> i mean why somebody wouldn't be justified in what seems to be at true least- to them at least at first glance, right? I mean, you have yeah, least, exactly. it's like you have some justification before right. you, you know, get it right. stripped away or something from a defeater. But yeah. So 
I get the epistemology. I love epistemology. Right. right. And the philosophy of religion, but the yeah. comparative philosophy. Mm. What's in its um, in Asian philosophy? Yeah. Is that yes, some of it. Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah, well, it started off. Uh, my interest in comparative philosophy was related to epistemology. So you know, there's there's this one objection against Plantinga's uh, religious epistemology that goes something like this: um, Plantinga's religious epistemology is weakened, significantly weakened given the fact that other serious religious traditions can utilize the, the epistemology to say the same thing that Plantinga does. Right. So and kind of uh, pluralism, pluralism. Right. Yeah. Except I, um, uh, so it's kind of like the great pumpkin objection, but it's right. a more serious objection. It's applied to specifically world religious, you know, serious religious traditions, uh, you know, traditions that people actually <laughs> sincerely believe, right. Instead right. of the great pumpkin. And so I was like, what well, is, that doesn't seem so. I just took a, a graduate course um, uh, on world religions, and I was like, that, that doesn't seem right. Um, it seems like there are certain preconditions that are needed to make intelligible Plantinga's proper functionalism. Um, and there's lots of religious traditions that seem to lack them. So, for example, uh, it seems like you need a designer or something like a designer. And uh, obviously, you have certain Eastern traditions that at least contemporarily glossed are atheistic, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, pantheistic, and, you know, there's religious traditions that don't emphasize having faculties that are successfully aimed at truth. <laughs> uh, right. And so, I, I was, all of a sudden, I was like, oh, no, someone needs to write on this, you know, to respond to this objection, because it seems like a bad objection. So, that's, you know, what I did with my PhD thesis, and uh, turned par part of that into a book with Eric Baldwin, and uh, that's our Plantigian Religious Epistemology and World Religions book, where it's kind of like we analyze the epistemology and worldviews of the various religious traditions. Uh, a couple mm -hmm. versions of Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism. And um, yeah, so that, that kind of is responsible for that. But um, I started also getting interested in um, what these religious traditions can offer Christians, one. Uh, and so, you know, I co-wrote with a student of mine, a former student at HBU, uh, uh, Joan Blatto, um, where we talked about how um, certain certain insights from Confucianism and contemporary psychology actually seem to point in a direction that God would likely set up um, uh, how we worship him and know him with like robust rituals. And so hmm. here's sort of it's an argument for for high liturgical use. Okay. Um, and that's in Theologica. Um, but uh, yeah, and then also I was lecturing um, in a comparative philosophy class uh, that I was teaching that semester. That paper came from it, but also the book that I've now um, co-authored with Baldwin again. He's the guy co-authored the religious epistemology uh, world religion one with. Um, I was lecturing one day and I was like, wait a minute. You know, you have guys like Brian Dave Davis and um, uh, David Bentley Hart no. uh, con conceiving God as not a thing, right? In fact, David no. Bentley Hart says God is no thing, right? God's nothing, right? No. Um, and uh, God's not like a being like you and I, but God is existence itself. God is being, right? right. And, uh, and then I started reading 
um, you know, more Buddhist literature. And I realized, wait a minute. Uh, while Buddhism has a history, right, of uh, developing arguments against theism, and uh, especially as it developed and evolved, um, they would say more precise things about God not existing and so forth. I thought, if you just take a minimalistic approach to Buddhism, um, actually, I think it might be consistent with uh, with classical theism. Hmm. And there's there's minimalist approaches, like, for example, by Jay Garfield and his Engaging Buddhism. He lists out a formula. Um, same would be with someone like um, Westerhoff or uh, Burton. Um, and then, we, you know, going back to some of the early, more primary texts, right, there is a very minimalistic sort of... Uh, approach. And I think it's because it follows directly from the Four Noble Truths. And um, yeah, so we were just like, wait a minute, I think there's something here. So we wrote a book kind of saying, hey, if you want to be a Buddhist, but you also want to be a theist, it's okay. (laughs) And so we try try to synthesize the the, the two views. um, And uh, we kind of just at the end say, is this consistent with Catholicism also? Like, I'll leave that up to theologians. Who am I? I'm, right. I'm but a mere philosopher. Um, <laughs> but uh, it does seem like you can be a classical theist and a Buddhist as well. What well, is, um, I know Buddhism is uh, very down the line with idealism if it's not idealism itself yeah uh, so you have certain certain buddhist traditions very much yeah that, that would, would follow that yeah yeah so i you know it, it was a buddhism that it came from hinduism right or uh well um it came from india yeah Oh, yeah, it's yeah, kind of yeah. like a philosophy that branched it, from Hinduism it. It, it responds to to various um, okay. conceptions yeah. of of Hinduism. So, like uh, in Hinduism, um, a lot of the Buddhist arguments against God are basically taking the um, uh, the Hindu conceptions of God and, and are responding to that. I didn't know they argued against God. Yes, yes. <laughs> they have uh, like the problem of evil, but they have more ar- objections than the problem of evil. They have their own various unique yeah. sort of Buddhist objections to God. That kind of reminds me of, you know, when Sam Harris and, uh, uh, oh, the psychologist, the one everybody likes to jump on. Uh, uh, Jordan John Peterson? Or, Jordan Peterson. When Jordan Peterson sat there patiently and drew out uh, what Sam Harris was getting at with his moral landscape, of, and mm. he's like, that sounds a lot like heaven and hell. And I was just <laughs> like, wow, because if you look at a lot of these different kind of secular philosophies, mm, mm-hmm. they seem to have this type of good and evil and you know, this, this, this pinnacle of good we're trying to reach and this, uh, evil or suffering or what it is we're trying to not get to. And it's, it's like, it's this almost the same message repackaged, mm, right? you know, right. and it seems to be in a lot of different, not just religions, but secular philosophies too. You know, it's like, we want what the Bible teaches, but you just don't <laughs> want to call it that. And we don't want to say it comes from the Bible, you know? Right, so, right, right, right. Uh, but yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I was one, I knew there had to be a connection there somewhere, you know, yeah. because, uh, you know, I, I knew, obviously I'd do my homework before you came on, but I knew a lot about you anyway, because we've been in the same circles for 
I mean, you've been up here, but I've been tagging no, along. No. So, <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, so it, it, when I when I'd seen the comparative uh, philosophy, I was like, man, wow! I just how does that fit in there? It doesn't. Yeah. Really fit in. yeah. And you've got another book with is it John Depoe? Oh uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I didn't even know about that book. I uh, yes, so I have. Was, so this is the the Cambridge one that I think you mentioned earlier. Sorry. Yeah, that's the one I have. I have the real thin one. Yeah, and then yeah. John Depoe and I edit, and then both contribute to a Five Views book on religious epistemology. Okay. Yeah. Um, sorry, the camera there, uh, and that's with Bloomsbury. Um, and so basically, in it, we basically just um, you know, one so one person's a classical foundationalist, uh, John. Another person oh, wow. is a phenomenal endorses uh, phenomenal conservatism. Um, that's, you know, uh, Logan Gage and Blake McAllister. There's, uh, someone who does a sort of, um, applies, uh, McIntyre's view of perspectivalism to epistemology. And so we have, we have him and we have, uh, Scott Oliphant doing covenantal, uh, presuppositionalism sort of stuff. And then, uh, I represent reformed epistemology and we all have an intro chapter and then we all respond to each other. And then we all, you know, the person gets to respond to everyone who responded to, to him. And nice. Yeah, that's the so book. how does some? I didn't think very many people were actual classical foundationalists anymore. How not they, many, not many, but there are. There, how do they respond uh, to Plantinga's? Uh, right. So, um, uh, John, for example, has a paper. Um, I think it's might be with like South African um, Journal, South African Philosophy, something like that. It's been a while since I looked at it, but basically, um, he'll argue. He'll say, "Well, what, what Plantinga has." done is he's basically just assumed that there are no good arguments for classical foundationalism. And, and so, uh, you know, John DePoe doesn't take it that foundational classical foundationalism is like an incorrigible truth, <laughs> but you know, nonetheless, the whole, he, he develops an argument. So Plantinga, he's like too fast Plantinga. Here's an <laughs> argument, right. For, for, um, classical foundationalism. And, uh, you know, he thinks it's the only sort of epistemic theory they can secure a tight connection to truth while also uh, making sense of our internal rationality. And so Whoa. the four other contributors in the book are like, uh, no, that's all. That's my theory. No, not your theory. Right. And we all have fun with each other trying to, sh sh you know, show that our theory yeah, is better than the other. I saw your response, your response in your book with, uh, to, you know, about incorrigible beliefs and, right, right. and foundationalism and, uh, I think you were yeah. pretty, pretty modest and uh, pretty good. You know, you didn't really hammer it. You just like, hey, there could be, you know, but why accept it? And I'm like, right, right, yeah, right. why accept it? That's <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a reason to accept it. It's uh, it's it's one of those that sound fantastic on the surface of it. But once you start peeling the layers back and it's like, well, yeah, let's see. It, it, it doesn't hold up to its own criteria, you know, and then we got to argue over, you know, uh, is the argument, you know, uh, incorrigible truth or, you know, it, it just, uh, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm just like, why, why even, I mean, there's too much there to try to defend when there's other avenues that you can take that to me seems at least prima facie easier right so like <laughs> some of my main worries is like can we really make sense of how animals and infants know things and young children right. know things right because uh they're not um making inferences 
right? And the idea with classical foundationalism is that um, the only yeah, you have to make an inference unless it's an incorrigible belief. And so, you know, let's say that um, uh, the idea that objects don't disappear when you look away, right? I mean, that's a belief that seems just natural right. to sophisticated, somewhat sophisticated animals. Um, uh, or what about like a you know child age three? They, according to cognitive science, they have a fully developed understanding of other minds. Um, like, are we really to say that you know they're making inferences <laughs> to to yeah. um, come to c- this conclusion that other minds exist, or is it more like you know they get into a certain environment, have a certain experience that moves their faculties in such a way as to produce the belief that someone's there, right? So uh, dogs seem to have knowledge, right? Uh, the walls right here, right? <laughs> or that you're a good boy, right? Or that, right. you know, uh, you know Whataburger is, is, is in my hand. Oh. Um, <laughs> you have to go there. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, so uh, they, they know stuff, but it's they know stuff because their faculties are functioning properly and they're successfully aimed at truth, not, not because right. they're doing some sort of inference or Bayesian calculation. And there's a little bit of a debate in the literature about, you know, um, are we all just subconsciously, you know, based? Are our brains based? <laughs> uh, and I think the literature on that has very much persuaded me that that's not the case. Um, and so, yeah, uh, and that, you, yeah, you, you, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I was going to say, that's what I was telling, uh, you know, Dr. Liz Jackson last week was I just found that I was, uh, uh, Bayesian, you know, because mm. I've always found, I've always looked at things uh, in probability, mm-hmm. you know, as as a probability, you know, and I found comfort in statistics and things like this. And so when I started learning about, you know, being a probabilist, it was like, that's what I am. That's it right there, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, now claiming that I'm a Bayesian epistemologist, now I'm getting all kinds of like, objections left and right and i was like man it just seems to be the most <laughs> natural thing for me leave me alone <laughs> so so, so you, you have those sorts of considerations um all this, obviously if you don't if you're not a fan of thinking that we have infallible beliefs you know classical foundationalism is kind of a non-starter right um but at the end of the day, I just don't see why it's necessary. Like when I think of the proper functional uh, conditions being met and a belief being formed in, in light of these, uh, it seems like I have a tight connection to truth. And and I think there are absolutely good responses to show how um, cases uh, like the Norman uh, Clairvoyant case um, or other right. cases that try to show you need internal rationality, that, that a proper functionalist has tools to, to uh, make sense of that. And so, yeah, I, I just uh, I'm I'm not not persuaded by the classical foundationalist position, and I think it's interesting. I mean, it doesn't mean it's false. Of course not. Right. That that, that uh, that's not the case. But um, you know, most people in epistemology and the analytic tradition, the mainstream, uh, rejects it. And I, I do think that that's that's something interesting, something at least to consider uh, as you're weighing um, right. everything in. Yeah. Yeah, that that's not an ad populum fallacy, guys. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's what I'm starting to notice is in the Western analytic tradition, there are it, people want to take a specific uh, path and they, you know, kind of like in theories of truth. And, you know, it, it's not that the correspondence theory is right. And, you know, these other different ideas that the, we can 
there there's one that fits the best but none of them get the job done i think we can kind of take from all of them and get like a meta theory of truth you know and, and that seems to be at least in my uh experience in epistemology like you know we were talking like you were talking about you know you could be one in justification and the mm-hmm. other in warrant we don't have to grab a horn and just ride it you know all right, the way right. through we can we can look at different ideas and, and put them together and right uh that's kind of and that's what i love about your work and that's what i like about uh andrew moon's work and you know uh in you know talking of planning i uh, once i grasped the idea it was like well that is so simple and it mm-hmm. makes so much sense. I mean, right. if your mind is functioning properly right. and you find yourself with a belief All that right. you didn't reason yourself to, you didn't have evidence for it, you just found yourself with a belief and it's aimed at truth and you fulfilled your epistemic duty, what else is there? I mean, it's like you've 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 kind of covered all the bases. In the absence of defeaters, why why am I not warranted or justified? Right, that, right. You know, and, and you can even construe evidence really weakly to where it's just like, yeah, the experience, you know, that's evidence. Right. And I have experience of it. So that's my evidence for it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, again, you can take a little bit of evidentialism. Right. And right. <laughs> and, and, and bring bring that into picture. Um, uh, though. Uh, yeah. Anyway. So, yeah. So I, I got to ask, since we keep bringing up uh, uh, Dr. Moon, who's smarter, you or him? Oh, Andrew. For sure. For sure. <laughs> well, you guys and, are... And Andrew is a good friend of mine. He's... Yeah. Uh, he's... In fact, we I think we might hopefully hang out uh, in a couple months. So he's in Virginia. Yeah. And so I'm not too far from him. So... Yeah, I've uh, you guys are pretty much regulars on Capturing Christianity. So <laughs> it's... Uh... I, I've learned a lot from you guys. It's uh I mean Cameron's done such a great thing over there. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but in the beginning when he started capturing Christianity, uh I had no idea it would turn into what it is. I know. Just, yeah, no, I mean he he uh contacted me. I was the first person he interviewed. Uh the first oh, philosopher wow. he interviewed. And ah. so he was like, Hey, I'm in Houston, I'd like to interview you and I was just like, Yeah, sure, let's you know, let's do it. And so he came to my office and um, you know, we did the interview and, uh, which is like, Oh, this is cool. Okay. You know, let's, let's see where you go with this. And I, I, I hope that your ministry will do well. And, and then just like Cameron became a friend of mine and we just kind of kept up with each other. And, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's just like within a year of that, you know, it just blows up and yeah. God's just moving in, 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 in so many ways on so many different people through the ministry. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's been great to watch. And, and I really praise God for, for Cameron and all of what he's done. I have gotten Dr. Graham Oppie and Dr. Richard Carrier on my show before Cam. That's how oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still haven't got, but he, he's so busy, man. It's, you know, I, how, I asked how, him. How, uh-huh. how was uh, Richard Carrier on the show? How was He was a blast, man. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I, uh, even though I, you know, pretty much disagree with everything, you know, I don't, like I was telling you, I don't do the debates and things. I just want to learn about the people, man. He, sure, sure, he's, sure. A, he's a character, man. He is. Yeah. Uh, he's he's a guy a, I want to meet. I, I would like, yes. actually, I, 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 would, I would like to meet 
uh, and then uh, Appiah, I've, uh we've never oh, met either. Was, so I'd, he was I'd, I'd like to meet both those people, but one day. I am, yeah. Oppie may be an atheist, but I I love the mess out of Oppie. He is by far one of one of my favorite philosophers. He's a kind he, guy. Yeah, he's so humble. He's so kind. He's brilliant, you know. And it's just like we need you on your our team. Come on, <laughs> stop holding out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I have uh, next week. I have uh, Doctor Richard Price or Doctor mm. Robert price yeah yeah, the original mythicist yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, that's gonna be fun he's a character too so uh we'll we'll see about that (laughs) fun stuff fun stuff what cameron doesn't know is i'm gonna pull a cameron i'm going to his conference and i'm gonna have my video camera and i'm gonna be like (laughs) hey would you like to do an interview so watch hey hey you know we yeah. gotta gotta keep up the hustle right yeah absolutely that's right i gotta you know ride off the backs of my friends because i don't have much to offer so but uh one last thing uh, on that topic of reformed epistemology what some of your viewers might not know is uh not only is it natural to you <laughs> but according to cognitive science of religion um it's it's natural to all of us <laughs> absolutely and and so the paradigm view is that it's an evol that belief in the supernatural is an evolutionary spandrel you know byproduct of certain um, advantageous evolutionary factors, right? Uh, to put it very bluntly and quickly. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's, there's uh, you know, one main theory is that we all have this hyper agency detection device that, um, you know, we um, see teleology even when it's not there. <laughs> um, right. De- Deborah Kilman calls this a promiscuous teleology, right? And so they've right. done various studies, right? Where it's, they've asked people like, why are rocks pointy? And they'll have <laughs> teleological explanations, like uh, so. So people won't sit on them, <laughs> and uh, and so like uh, you know, so animals don't sit on them, and 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 you know, people prefer teleological explanations. And and this, there's been studies that have shown that people prefer teleology and sense teleology across uh, cultures. So it's not like a Western theism thing. It's it's right. you know, there, there's a nice edited volume. Uh, that just really d- investigates China and, and you know, are, are these results going to be the same and so forth? And so the idea is that maybe we have this hyper agency detection device. Uh, we see agency even when it's not there. Um, you know, an organism that's going to see agency a lot more than an organism that doesn't see it enough, right, is going to be much better uh, shaped to survive, right? Right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, so maybe you look at a beautiful starry sky or, um the ocean move or uh, picking up a delicate flower and looking at all of its intricacies. And uh, you just might find yourself believing God made this or some agent made this. Right. And I've had those sorts of religious experiences as well, where I pick up a flower and I'm just, uh, you know, in nature and I'm just like blown away looking at its texture and I'm just since design, like design just overwhelmingly, you know, consumes me. So, so yeah, it's not only natural uh, for, 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 for you, but for, for everyone, I think it fits quite well with what science tells us. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic point. I've, I've done a lot of almost as much reading in psychology mm. as philosophy because uh, my younger brother's schizophrenic and mm. oh. I've had, uh, you know, anxiety and depression disorder for many, many years. So yeah. just wanting to know more about the mind and, you know, how it works. And uh, yeah, I've read quite a few articles that, uh, you know, they, we have this like sixth sense mm. that 
you know, like this, there's a section of our brain that's like mm -hmm. programmed to automatically believe in a God or higher mm -hmm. being or spirits or things. Supernatural. Of right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. It, it's, it's, uh, and you're right. It's very close to, or fits very well with proper functionalism or reformed right. epistemology, you know, because if there is a census divinitatis, then it makes sense that we would be inclined <laughs> to believe, you know. Right. Um, there's, and it's funny because you were talking about the looking at the flower thing, and my my wife and I started to watch uh, the Walking Dead. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, the Tomorrow War. <laughs> oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So we, we started watching that, and it, then it got into a discussion about the theory of time, and then it got into the theory of relativity, and then ultimately to quantum mechanics, and the next thing we're watching space-time videos. <laughs> so, and then after the space-time videos, I saw this thing. It was uh, Hubble Pictures in mm -hmm. 4k with like music and all of this. And she was like, Oh, click on that, you know? And so we're sitting there for 30 minutes, just watching space pictures. And, right. and, and we kind of looked at each other and I was like, how, how can people not believe in a God or some kind of right, higher power? Right, Cause it's right. just, it is that all inspiring mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. it to, you know, in the course, it's uh, it's just a natural response to right, right. To me, your environment. Yeah, yeah, to me at least, that I'm just like, wow, that's there's no way that's just happenstance, you know. That just it's too beautiful. It's too gorgeous, you know. So, so now you need to find a really beautiful Catholic cathedral. And you'll have the same exact experience in there. <laughs> and, you know, if you're consistent with one, just go with the other, you know, so. <laughs> well, I, somehow I knew you'd bring it around. Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So I got to know who's your, and you get, just like I told uh, Dr. Jackson, you only get to pick one. Who's your okay. favorite, favorite philosopher, most influential. I've this this isn't going to be any secret. Alvin Plantiga. There so. you go. She gave me some names I had to look up. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and but it was on purpose. It was like oh, I didn't want to use cliche names. <laughs> you know. And if, if and if, if you were going to uh, extend the list at all, that probably Aquinas would be the next influential person. Yeah, so. he's he is phenomenal for sure. So the best director for star wars which one um i'm gonna get in some some trouble for this i actually think that jj abrams saved the star wars franchise uh after episode eight uh wow. i i thought episode eight did a real big disservice to the trilogy and wow. like overall the trilogy gets like a c um uh, but uh, it would have been like a D if if JJ uh, uh, Abrams um, uh, didn't uh, do that. I think. Yeah. Oops, I'm knocking my mic around. <laughs> <laughs> so I I'm actually surprised because I've seen so many uh, sites that argue everybody but JJ Abrams. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, right. 
I'm a I'm a George Lucas guy, and the reason sure, sure. the original. I I'm right. gonna be, be honest with you. I just really didn't get into the later series. It was right. 70s and 80s for me, and I just couldn't get into the other ones like I did. So I mean, we lived it. It was Star Wars was everything, right? You know. Right. But I'm probably a little bit older than you too, so. Well, yeah. I had a Luke Skywalker action figure and Darth Vader oh, action you figures, you know, and I had. Uh, the very first lightsabers that they like made toys, you know, that yeah. extended. And uh, I, I watched the mess out of those. And I remember I was so excited because they had like this re um, like going back. So somewhere around like 1996 or seven, all the movie theaters started uh, um, uh, playing Star Wars um, four, five and six. Uh, and they were all coming back to the movie theaters and stuff. And uh, I just I thought that that was like an awesome uh awesome they were like digitalizing and making everything better um but yeah i mean i think the the storyline of the original three is is the best yeah graphic wise though and like aesthetics uh the aesthetics i definitely i kind of i like the this the sequel um but uh for the kind of world and just kind of ideas that pop in um then uh, the 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 prequels. I actually like those sort of that world. I want to spend more time in that world uh, where there's Jedi's everywhere and yeah. <laughs> the the Empire is really at bay, you know. So, so your favorite actor out of all of the Star Wars? Come on, there's only one. <laughs> Mark Hamill. <laughs> <laughs> No, Harrison Ford. Come on, oh, okay. man. Okay. Come okay. on. Okay. There's not anybody else. <laughs> I was gonna say whoever whoever voices Yoda, maybe. I don't know. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yoda, yeah. <laughs> Yoda and he, Chewbacca, you know, those, there you those, go. those are my guys. I can actually do Chewbacca too, but oh, okay. Yeah. yeah I'm you not sure? You don't wanna yeah. do do you need to have another drink yeah. in order to yeah. do that? Yeah, I gotta have a couple more drinks. Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, it's one of those things you gotta kind of warm up and then do it because it sounds stupid if you just right. pop out and do it. I got know, you. I got you. It. Yeah. So I got I, I can also do a really good Smeagol, but I, I won't do that here either. <laughs> <laughs> so before you go, uh, we try to keep it around an hour. I gotta know yeah. a little bit about Macau. How was mm. it? Were you there yeah. with the family or by yourself? Yes, both. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so originally, uh, I got there for two or three months and then they came and then, uh, COVID happened mm-hmm. and, uh, we came back to America thinking it was just going to be a few weeks, maybe a month or two and it would pass over. I had it. My Dr. Macau told me that, that that's what he thought it was going to happen. And so, uh, then all of a sudden it starts to get out of China and start going elsewhere in the world. And I was like, I need to get back to Macau before they close the borders. And my wife's like, well, I didn't get to see my parents, so I want to see them. Uh, so I'll just be a little longer, and you make sure it's safe over there. And once you figure out that it's safe in Macau, then we'll come over. So um, I got over there, and within like two weeks, they shut down all the borders. And uh, no one could get back in, even if you live there. Uh, only mm. if you were a, a resident, a permanent resident there. Right. And so we were separated for nine months. Um, oh. And uh, uh, finally, in November, I was able to see that my president, my rector of my university was super kind and said, you know, go home to your family. Uh, So I've been teaching online since November. And uh, I still still pay rent there. (laughs) I still have my stuff, a lot of my stuff there. So I know we're planning to go back as soon as they open up. But it's just a question of whenever they will open up. 
So it looks like it's a beautiful country. Beautiful, uh, beautiful. Yeah. I love Macau. It's beautiful. The um, the culture there is like a fusion of you know west versus and east. Uh, oh, wow. Nice Christian Catholic population. Uh, nice Buddhist population. Um, and uh, it's you know so you see statues of Mary just like all around town or or oh, wow. churches all around yeah. town and uh, or crosses and then at the same time you'll see like Buddhist temples or kind of fused Buddhist uh, you know Taoist uh, etc temples all around and and beautiful mountains and the oceans there obviously the South China Sea right. um, so yeah no it's it's a fantastic place uh, yeah. to be and I, I definitely miss it. Is it like a 24 hour three stop yes. to get there? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We had, uh, we had a, one of our customers was going to put a side in, in, uh, Shenzhen. Mm. Yes, yes. Yes. I'm very close to there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it like got right up to almost booking the flights and stuff. And I'm just like looking at it going, Oh my gosh, I cannot spend that long on an airplane. It's, you know, I got to call the doctor and be like, hey man, you got some good drugs. <laughs> so I, I got immune to flying when I lived in Scotland and we would come back and forth visiting from the Scotland. UK. Scotland. Uh, I didn't know you lived there. Yeah, yeah, for three years. We lived in, in Scotland for three years. And oh, Glasgow. Uh, that's right. Going, going back and forth. And uh, I was like, okay. That's takes like 12, 14 hours, yeah. you know? Oh, wow. That's... And then, so it's just like, eh, add another seven and you can go to China. <laughs> well, I won't complain about my flights to California anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, the first year I was with this company, I was gold with three different flight, mm. uh, air or three different airliners. And I was like, okay, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> you guys are going to have to do something. And uh, a couple of years later, it finally died down and, now, eh, it's not too bad. Every few months, I'll take a couple yeah. flights or something. But it's such a hassle, man. It's, oh, you know, I just, oh, it drains Especially me. because California doesn't have Tex-Mex or Whataburger. So, I mean, that's... that's Yes. Oh, the Whataburger thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I wanted. So, I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee. We okay. had a Whataburger when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then they kind of like drew back all the franchises. So right, right. I didn't have it. We moved to Northwest Arkansas, where we are now, about ten years ago, mm. and I work in Tulsa a lot. And there mm. were a couple of Whataburgers there, so I wore out Whataburger. I loved nah. it, you know. Well, then they built one here in mm. Fayetteville, uh, Arkansas, and. My wife and them ha- hadn't had it near as much as me. And I'm just like, man, I can't do Whataburger again. I can't. And that's all they ever want. Let's let's go to Whataburger. And the line is like, you know, down and out the road. And but it's I mean, like at least Chick-fil-A. in Texas. Yeah. But at least in Texas, just like Chick-fil-A is quick. Yes. Yeah. No, I not mean, here. No, no, no they're no, terrible. Okay. Yeah. Or, no, uh-uh. Okay. No. Okay. Chick-fil-A, like they, they have streamlined it. It's, yes. Yeah. Chick-fil-A yeah. is quicker. I agree. Chick-fil-A yeah. is quicker. But the lines for Whataburger to me aren't like horrible, horrible, like the length of time you spend. Yeah, no, it's pretty terrible here. Most of them, it's not. <laughs> You're right. I mean, I've been, you know, all over Oklahoma and Texas, and yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's just a here thing. So. Maybe, maybe because there's just like not enough Whataburgers there, you know? Yes, yes. We They built that one, and then about six months later, I built one on the other side of Fayetteville. And now the one on the, the other side of Fayetteville, you can, you can get in and get out with no problem. But this well, one is I- right. 
right by the college. I, I'm, more, University I'm more excited to go to Arkansas now. Now, now uh, uh, when I drive through from North Carolina to Texas in uh, a few months, uh, I will definitely be keeping my eye out for Arkansas. <laughs> and Arkansas yeah, well, for... <laughs> I don't, you'll, you'll be on 40, and I don't know if you're going to find very many Whataburgers up there. <laughs> We're up in the corner. It's kind of like everybody f- up here because Walmart's headquarters is here. Tyson Chicken's headquarters is here. Right. Everybody's from California, Texas, somewhere else, you know. So we kind of have our own unique economy up here. Uh, but, yeah, I don't even think you'll find one on 40 till you – get into texas maybe so that's okay. gonna suck for you but <laughs> an extra four or five hours of out without there you go I'll and i okay. you know the whole in and out versus whataburger i don't get it because i've had a lot of in and out and it's nothing spectacular either and i'm, just, <laughs> I'm like yeah no okay it's you have both of them <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on right, dr McNabb. man i have enjoyed it i love your work uh, that's very kind of you and i am uh humbled and honored that you would come on our little show but well, that's very kind of you and uh very much enjoyed it and uh hopefully your your show continues uh to flourish and succeed and uh help people i appreciate it uh i hope it does we'll be famous one day and then you can say hey i was on that guy's show right and they're gonna be like who are you <laughs> that's right yeah that's no yeah that ain't gonna happen so <laughs> thank you so much for your time man i enjoyed it have a great evening i'm gonna see everybody you out you can hang out in the backstage if you want if you got to go i understand so all right well thank right. you very much man all right no problem boss have a good one dr tyler McNabb. If you like epistemology, you'll love his work, especially as much as you've heard me talk about reformed epistemology. Uh, I know there's a lot of guys there in the chat that's tired of hearing about reformed epistemology, but uh, Planninga and then McNabb and Andrew Moon does fantastic work uh, carrying on his or carrying on the torch. Uh as usual, thank you, Pasta Mike, with Normalizing Atheism, all of the artwork, the logos, the introduction video, uh, the cutaways I haven't got to use much lately. Uh, we're going to incorporate it somehow, but uh, check him out. He has uh, Normalizing Atheism on YouTube, and he has a Facebook group, which is Normalizing Atheism Facebook group. And... He does phenomenal editing jobs, and his videos over there are top-notch. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Next week, I have Dr. Robert Price, the OG of mythicism. He is, uh, he is a character. He is going to be fun. I promise you do not want to miss Dr. Price next week for sure. Have a good evening, everybody.